What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 172. Today, we are switching it back into true crime mode. We are going to be talking about the controversial death of Michelle O'Connell. And this one is very interesting. I think you guys will have a lot of thoughts and opinions to share in the comments. You have a lot of thoughts, too. I do. Yeah, this one honestly pisses me off. Yeah, me too. And the fact that literally nothing has been done to bring Michelle justice is just absolutely crazy. I mean, you'll see as soon as we get into it that this is just such a messed up mess. Like, yeah, it's a mess. It's just an absolute mess. So much bullshit. Beginning to end. It's unbelievable. Um, But we'll get into that. And we also have a little short, which we haven't really done on our show before yet. But um, I was approached by the family of a victim named Katie Palmer to talk about her case and it is a vehicular homicide. So it's not something that we normally talk about and there isn't that much information that we could do a full mile higher episode on it. But this story really touched me. It's something I wanted to share with you guys and I'm really hoping that a few of you, a lot of you please can help them out um, because they really just need support. They need people rallying around them on social media and you know, raising the red flag along with them. So I want to tell you a little bit about her story. So I'm going to get into that first. But before we get into Katie Palmer's case, I quickly wanted to thank our sponsors for today. MeUndies, Simply Safe, HelloFresh, ExpressVPN, and Stamps.com. Also, just a reminder, our wellness brand, Higher Love Wellness, we have actually just lowered our prices like 10, 20% on all of our products. And this is not a sale. This is permanent pricing that has just changed Basically, we have taken on shipping and packing that we were having an outside company do before. Yeah, we and got our own warehouse. We do. So with having our own warehouse space, we we're able to basically hire our own staff, which happens to be friends and family, which is really cool. Yes, it's really cool. And so the discounts that we now have on shipping and packing, we're passing along those to you guys mm-hmm. and just making our products even more affordable for you. And also there is a 10% off code for all podcast listeners of Mile Higher Media, and that is code HOMIE. So homies check it out if you haven't checked out the site in a little while the prices have dropped quite a bit and i think uh yeah i think you'll be very happy about it that's h-o-m-i-e-s correct i know someone was trying to type it in homie like h-o-m-e-y that's not even a word well who knows i mean you don't know if in (laughs) other i don't know if that's even a slang term in other countries so some of our listeners are like homie what the hell so i just wanted to clarify homies Gotcha. Now that we've got all of that out of the way, let's talk about Katie Palmer. Yeah. So this case is extremely heartbreaking. Katie Palmer was a very loved member of her community. She was a teacher um, and her students are still absolutely heartbroken to this day about what happened. And her family is all, you know, fighting as hard as they can for justice, because to this day, there has been no justice for Katie Palmer Her husband, John Palmer, has been really leading the charge for justice and what they went through together. And these moments that I'm about to describe to you are very upsetting. Like this is really one of the saddest things I've ever heard. Um, So this happened last year, April 21st, 2020. Katie and her husband, John, John normally would take walks around his neighborhood like often in the morning, early, early morning. And he wanted Katie to start joining him. So one morning he convinced her to go. And she actually was reluctant to go at first. Um, She was just tired. 
But he was like, come on, let's do it. Let's get up. So they, they went up on this walk and they had no idea what was about to happen. This would be the first and last walk that Katie would join him on. So they're just walking in their neighborhood and they're walking on the roadside. Actually, there was no sidewalk and they were walking on the appropriate side of the road. When you walk on a road that doesn't have a sidewalk, you're supposed to walk on the side that has oncoming traffic. So they did everything right. Suddenly, a truck, a silver truck, veered over to the other lane into oncoming traffic and actually hit them and sent both of them flying. Obviously, both Katie and John were severely injured. And when John kind of came to and realized what was going on, he had this horrible pain. He said it felt like there was a ratchet around his waist and he could not get up. And then he realized that Katie was lying near him and he could hear her moaning. He said a terrible sound and he could hear that she was having labored breathing. He said that he heard her take one last gasp of air and that's when he knew that she was probably gone. John describes Katie as his soulmate. She was a fantastic mother, a great friend to so many people, and just an overall amazing person. John was brought to the ICU. They were actually brought to two different hospitals, and unfortunately, Katie was pronounced dead at the hospital. And like I said earlier, there has been absolutely no justice for Katie Palmer. It is unbelievable. And you might think, is that because the person fled the scene? No, they were there. The police came. Let me tell you more about what happened after the accident. So the Department of Public Safety was on scene 30 minutes after they were hit, and there was no accountability for that time. And DPS was the one that came to the scene because the incident happened outside of city limits, so they are the responding agency. The hospital sent a helicopter because the injuries were so bad, and it had just arrived as Trooper Tarif Al-Khatib arrived on the scene. After the troopers arrived, they brought Corey Foster out of his car and he was questioned and questioned about drinking, especially. And they stated that there was a strong presence of alcohol on his breath. And Corey changed his story about how much he drank that day multiple times. At one point, he said he had up to five whiskeys throughout the day and then he kept changing his story. At one point, he said the last time he drank was like seven, then it was eight, then it was nine. So there was never a straight answer. They did do a field sobriety test on him, but it was not done until 50 minutes after they had first arrived on scene for whatever reason. The Palmer family has released body cam footage of the interactions between Trooper Al-Khatib and Corey Foster on their Facebook group, and the video reveals a lot. It shows Trooper Al-Khatib conducting a field sobriety test starting with walking a straight line and then giving Corey a horizontal gaze test. Corey struggles with it and blames it on his work boots. And Trooper Al-Khatib tells him that he understands and takes it into consideration. And he even gave Corey a breathalyzer test, but he didn't show it on his body cam. So no one has seen the actual result. He just recorded it down himself, which it's normally common to show that number. You're supposed to show as much as you can of what's going on on your body cam. And the trooper actually said in the body cam footage, wow, you must have drank a lot last night because it's still going up from there. You're under the limit, but you still have that in your system many hours later. But he ended up concluding that Corey was not intoxicated, which is unbelievable, especially because they noted that they smelled the alcohol on his breath. 
So overall, the case was mishandled from the beginning. They never took enough pictures on the scene either. They failed to mark the scene properly, and they didn't question any of the first responders on the scene or even eyewitnesses that saw the incident happen. None of that was done. On Wednesday morning, John and his mother-in-law, alongside a group of Katie supporters and loved ones, gathered outside of the Grayson County Courthouse while grand jurors decided whether or not to indict Corey Foster based on the evidence. And hours later, it was announced that the grand jury decided that they would decline to indict Corey Foster on manslaughter or criminal negligence charges stemming from the wreck. Corey said that he had been blinded by the sun and he also talked about how it was foggy that morning and there was condensation on his windshield when the wreck occurred. So he never saw them. And what's crazy is Corey actually knew who they were. When he first hit them, he actually got out of the car and started screaming, oh my God, I didn't know it was you. So they made that contact. They knew each other. A few small encounters. They weren't friends or anything. And also the jury should consist of 12 jurors. We all know that. But one ended up calling in sick and another one pardoned themselves. So they only had 10 people in the jury. John, of course, asked the courts why they were never replaced, but they failed to provide any answer. The grand jury also did not see the entire body cam footage, which does show you a lot. One of the jurors was actually friends with the assistant DA who presented the case in front of the grand jury and had been to a party with them the weekend before. And not only that, they also found out that you know, this is a small town and it turns out that Trooper Al-Khatib actually knew Corey Foster and it's alleged that they would hang out together and drink sometimes. So he should have removed himself from the case as soon as he realized Corey was involved, but he didn't do that. The family has asked the DA to hold Trooper Al-Khatib accountable for his negligence and give Katie a fair chance at justice. The DA, Brett Smith, and John's attorney were campaigning against each other, and there is still a rivalry between them. It's unfair to Katie and her family to be stuck in between this rivalry. Their family just wants justice for Katie. They want a fair trial with the correct amount of jurors. Imagine if you lost someone. Imagine if you were in John's situation. You were walking along with the love of your life, and someone just comes out of nowhere and hits them, and nothing is done about it. Imagine how angry you would be. And it turns out that there was so many mistakes made. Breathalyzing him 50 minutes after they arrived on scene, his numbers definitely would have gone down by that point. And he was like right at the limit. There's more information on this case if you're interested on their website, which we will have linked below. The website is justiceforkatiepalmer.com. They are also very active on their Facebook group and are really encouraging anyone who wants to follow along or support them to follow it because they might have petitions or things that they need done later on. So the more people that can follow them and support them, the better. And I know that it helps so many families with this process and just getting that support, you know, when you're grieving is super helpful. This happened last year. So if you have any time, we know so many of you are so sweet. I'd really appreciate if you'd go give them a follow and just tell them you're thinking of them or, you know, your thoughts on everything. And then, of course, they have a Twitter as well, which is at four underscore Palmer. Their Facebook group is under Justice for Katie Palmer, but we will also link it below. And I would really appreciate if you guys could follow that. If you want to take it an extra mile, take it a mile higher, you can contact the Grayson County District Attorney Brett Smith at 903 813 
four three six one or email them at smith b at co dot racin dot texas dot us we will have all that information in the description box along with a pre-typed email that you can use kind of as a base feel free to change it up or add your own thoughts or write your own and their family would be so appreciative you know i know all of us out there have had a teacher at least one in our lives that really made a difference on us and katie was that teacher for a lot of students and a lot of people are really hurting in this community right now having no justice for her and it just seems unbelievable to i mean imagine being in this situation would you ever think you wouldn't nothing would come of it nothing would be done if you were that's what i can't wrap my head around is the fact that absolutely nothing was done basically he just got off with i mean at the very least i mean there should be manslaughter or something, you know, mm-hmm. some type of charge associated. I mean, at the end of the day, he killed another human being. So to just chalk this up to an accident when there's clear evidence to suggest that it wasn't a, a, just an accident that, oops, I couldn't see the sun's in my eyes yeah. and to veer across the entire roadway. That just doesn't happen. I mean, a I sober person is not going to ever do that no matter what is in your eyes. I mean, I think most people understand that you slow down you pull over to the side of the road if you can't see and and get your situation figured out, not veer off into oncoming traffic Mm -hmm. and then into pedestrians is just, it's unbelievable, honestly. And John also talked about how Corey was one of the people in their neighborhood that he had noticed would drive extremely fast up and down that roadway. Like just ridiculous neighborhood Even in our neighborhood. I mean, yeah, people drive way too mm -hmm. fast. They do all over the place. And this is a perfect example of why it matters to slow down in neighborhoods. But I think the alcohol could have played a big part. I mean, he drank a lot the day before he admitted it. And who knows if he would, he would have probably been over the toxication level for driving if they had done the test right when they got on the scene and they didn't. And he was struggling with his sobriety test as well. Plus there are also, I will say rumors, this is alleged that he's an alcoholic and john has brought that up he's been told by many people that he has a drinking problem there's a past with him and so john really feels like they are protecting him yeah i mean it's pretty clear just from what happened in the timeline as far as the trooper and the fact that trooper knew Corey. and i mean it none of this is really that surprising that it's a small town where you know, everybody knows everybody. Everybody's got connections, yeah. you know, in government and law enforcement. And yet this again, kind of stuff happens all law the enforcement's time. not doing what they should be, which is the right thing. And yeah, looking out for the victim in the case as opposed to just, you know, playing by their own. Let's rules. hurry up and get this thing closed up and put away and, yep. and forget about it. And it's just like, I mean, just I mean, that's what we're about to get into with this next case is yep. very similar to mm-hmm. this story in the sense that police arrive and you expect police to do their job i mean they literally go to police academy for almost a year to especially if you're a trooper you should be an expert on car accidents and how to record those properly how to deal with duis how to deal with things like that and just the mishandling of it i think is the most angering part yeah i'm sure especially for john just like what the hell you guys literally didn't even do your job in order to investigate this properly so i think that's that's the big issue here is that it wasn't investigated properly and mm-hmm. now there's other levels of of government and law enforcement where 
you know, how come this went to a grand jury and the grand jury came back with no, you know, no reason to charge him. And it wasn't even a fair grand jury. Two of them were missing. Right. So it just shows you that the justice system in most places, if not all places, is has lots of problems. It does. And it really is much more political than I think anybody likes to admit is it's about who do you know, who's Mm -hmm. connected with who, and oftentimes law enforcement protects those that they want to. And Yeah, I mean, I think I keep going back to how he didn't show the results of the test on his body cam. That seems like he was protecting him because I'd understand maybe forgetting to do that if it's just like a driver who's swerving and you give them a sobriety test and you forget to show it on your body cam. But this, I mean, a woman just died. Two people were just hit in a neighborhood. Why wouldn't that be top priority to make sure you get that number on your body cam when you're trained to do that? Right. It seems like he didn't want it on there. Well, there is maybe it was something the, different than what he wrote down. Yeah, and that's it's, the that's biggest problem. Yes. That is my own speculations, but that's the problem as a, as a police officer, it's your job to be unbiased and mm-hmm. record the facts. That's, that's literally what you're, you're trained to and do. If you and you can't be unbiased. You need to remove yourself from the case. Right. Period. Right. And that wasn't done. And that's something that should be reported to a superior, a sergeant or whoever should be notified that, Hey, I know this individual. I don't, you know, and, there's it's your responsibility to do that that's literally you say an oath to protect and serve and like i feel like so many cops like once they get into the job they just completely forget about why they got into this in the first place and what oaths that they took yeah and it becomes more about what's going to be easier for me what's going to be easier for you know this person that i know versus these random people that that just had absolute tragedy strike so yeah it's very frustrating and i can can't even imagine what it'd be like to lose a loved one in this type of way and then have absolutely nothing be done i know imagine how her children feel and how much more they will feel that pain as they grow older and really understand what that means angry i mean it's the anger must be it's just terrible so yeah i was gonna say in honor of you know your own favorite teacher or someone in your life that you love maybe your mother take a second and contact Brett Smith. It's really important. They are really looking for help. They need help. And you know, it's fun to annoy these people, guys. Honestly, we were going to make it really easy. It's going to have, you know, everything typed up in the description box for a quick email. And the phone call will also type up a little example conversation, but it's very, very easy to do. Don't be intimidated. And it can really go a long way. Every call truly matters. So We really appreciate anyone that takes a second to do that. And we just want to send our best to the Palmer family. I can't imagine what you guys have been through. And John, you know, I think you're really amazing. Everything that you've done for Katie and how hard that you have fought on top of grieving and trying to raise your children um, for her to get justice. It's really amazing. So, And it becomes more about just, you know, helping other victims too i mean it's like it becomes a bigger mission at the end of the day you're not ever able to bring that loved one back but if you can enact change in a system that desperately needs change then maybe you'll prevent this from happening to another family where another family gets totally screwed over by the justice system and and law enforcement and you know they are then you know for i think that's the best thing that you can really do is you can make yourself known make your thoughts known and Mm -hmm. 
tell the people that have the power to make the changes what needs to be done. Yeah. And if those people in office, many times the people in office that are at the highest levels of law enforcement and government, if they're not doing the job that they say they're supposed to, they're going to do, then it's time to get them the hell out of it. Mm-hmm. And that's why voting is so important, especially on the yeah. local levels is like, that's like one of the biggest things you can do to help, help make positive change in your community is yes. be a voter and take it seriously. Like look into what the sheriff is doing, who's running for yes. uh, re-election maybe, or who's the new sheriff point. coming in is like, be active in your community yeah. and actually look at what the sheriff stands for. What's their track record? Don't what's, just go Democrat because you normally go right. Democrat. It's Don't not go about party lines no, and not. local government. It really isn't. Not with DAs especially. Yeah. I mean, that one, I think a lot of people glaze over the DAs and a lot of bad DAs get into yeah. power. It's I mean, we've really seen it firsthand. It's like... Yep some of these DAs out there and sheriffs and whatnot are just on a power trip. Like it's all Mm -hmm. ego for them. It's all about furthering their career, their status, their, you know, level in government. And at the end of the day, they really don't care about Mm -hmm. the victims of their community and how they're being mistreated by, and just literally law enforcement, not doing their being negligent in their responsibilities to the community. It's like crazy. Let's contact DA Brett Smith, guys. Let's him. let him know what we think. No, be nice, please. Actually, be very be, polite. Yeah. That be goes way further. Be professional. So, yeah, please follow our email guidelines in the description. But yeah, let's let's help Katie's family fight for her. But let's go ahead and switch gears here and get into the absolutely insane case of Michelle O'Connell. And before we get started, I'm just going to give a trigger warning that the subject matter contained in this episode does have to deal with suicide. So just like to let people know ahead of time that that is pretty common throughout it. But let's go ahead and jump into it here. So just after 11 p.m. on September 2nd, 2010, police officers in St. Augustine, Florida responded to a shots fired call at 4700 Sherlock Place. And this is a house just in a quiet residential neighborhood. And it was a signal 18 that went out, which means that a subject has been shot and it involved one of their own. Deputy Deborah Maynard was at a nearby gas station getting coffee with two other officers when they got the call. Fellow officer 23-year-old Jeremy Banks had called 911 minutes before, and he told the dispatcher he thought his girlfriend, 24-year-old Michelle O'Connell, had shot herself. I'm going to go ahead and play a clip of the 911 call now. 911. As you could hear on the call, Jeremy was frantic and desperate, begging for help and repeating please multiple times. He said again that Michelle shot herself with his service weapon. She wasn't breathing and there was blood everywhere. The dispatcher repeatedly asked him to calm down. Jeremy actually corrected the dispatcher twice when she called him ma'am, saying it's mister, it's sir, which is kind of odd. But after correcting her that second time, he goes on to identify himself as Deputy Banks with the St. John's County Sheriff's Office. And before the first officer arrived on the scene, Jeremy said for the third time on the 911 call that his girlfriend shot herself. Like He made sure that they knew that the officers were rolling up to a suicide call. Deborah and the two other officers arrived at 11.25 p.m. and another young deputy was already there. Deputy Maynard walked into the house and she said she could see Michelle's feet through the bedroom door, like right in the doorway. She was lying face up with her head near the bed and she had been clearly shot in the mouth because the blood was basically running 
off the sides of her mouth onto the floor. Jeremy's department-issued service weapon, an HK-45 caliber pistol, was on Michelle's left side. The tactical searchlight or tack light on the end of the barrel was switched on. There was a bullet hole in the carpet by Michelle's right arm, and Jeremy was crouched in the bathroom doorway, squatting and clutching his phone, crying. One of the officers decided that they had to document the scene before the EMTs arrived, which is pretty obvious. That's what they should have done. And the shooting involved a deputy and a service weapon, so they were going to be questions, obviously, about what happened later on. An officer took pictures of the scene, including Michelle's position on the floor, the gun, and the bullet hole in the carpet. Her pockets were filled with dozens of prescription painkillers, and the shell casings were later found behind her and to the left next to the bed. As soon as they arrived, the EMTs got to work on Michelle, trying to clear the blood away from her airway, but unfortunately, it was too late and Michelle was pronounced dead at 11.48 p.m. So let's talk a little bit about who Michelle O'Connell was. She was born on October 6, 1985, and was raised by her mother, Patty O'Connell, in St. Augustine, Florida, along with her two sisters, Jennifer and Christine, who went by Chrissy, and her three brothers, Justin, Sean, and Scott. She was a single mom who worked two or three jobs at a time to support her four-year-old daughter, Alexis, who she loved more than anything. Lexi, as she called her, was the light of her life. Motherhood came very naturally to Michelle, and there wasn't anything that she wouldn't do for her daughter. Her family was actually close connected with the St. John's County Sheriff's Office. Her brother, Scott, was a sheriff's deputy, and he was the one who first introduced her to Jeremy Banks. The couple started dating in 2009 and moved in together after just six months. Her mother, Patty, who also worked at the sheriff's office, was a file clerk. Recently, Michelle had been working as a house cleaner through Molly Maid, but she finally had landed her dream job, and she was so excited about it. She was hired to work as a teacher's assistant with Tech Tots Child Care at First Coast Technical College. She had already picked up her key and was scheduled to start soon. Michelle was so excited that she would finally have a career, not just a job, and she actually told the director that she was so excited to go to the doctors finally because... Now she had health care. This was the start of a new life for her and Alexis, and she was very, very happy about it and at a good time in her life. Which all this is super important to understand that there's absolutely no signs as far as her family's concerned and her mm-hmm. friends to suggest that Michelle was suicidal in any way or that nope. there was that was even an inclination in her brain at that part of her life. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get more into the investigation, how all of that unfolded. But before that, we're going to take a quick ad break. So on the night of the shooting, Deputy Deborah Maynard brought Jeremy outside while the detectives worked. She could tell that he had been drinking. And when they got outside, she said he started growling like an animal. Hmm. And then he punched dents into the police car. So that's interesting. Then a male deputy grabbed him and said, I don't care if you're intoxicated or not. You better sober up. And within minutes, off-duty officers, friends, and family members arrived at the house to support Jeremy. His stepfather, who was a deputy sheriff in another county, held him close and comforted him. Eventually, he was taken in one of the squad cars to be interviewed about what happened. And the interview was conducted by another officer with a supervisor present. And it was recorded, so we will play that now. My motorcycle's in the garage. I'm sitting on it with my head down. And uh, 
it. I heard it pop, and I knew exactly what it was, and I ran inside. I started screaming her name, and the bedroom door was locked, and I screamed her name again. I heard it go off again for the second time. I think it's important to note that this is definitely not best practice for this type of scenario where an officer is involved in a potential crime Mm -hmm. And rather than, you know, separating him and properly taking him somewhere else or even having another department, somebody that Mm -hmm. doesn't know him question him about what happened. It's just basically somebody he works with. So, you know, imagine, you know, if you got in trouble at work and then, you know, you were sent to go talk to your boss about it, who you're friends with and work with on a daily basis. Obviously, it'd Mm -hmm. be different if, you know, we're talking about a crime versus just a problem at work. But you can see where that conflict of interest is, you know, like obviously they're going to already be biased towards Jeremy because he works with them. Yeah. Or I guess you could say that if your boss was your friend or right. your family member, then it would create right, exactly. a bias situation. Yeah. Again, we're talking about bias with the police and why it matters so much to have unbiased people involved, especially when an officer is involved and was at a crime scene. Yeah. And somebody is dead. Mm hmm as a result of your service weapon going off. So Jeremy said he was alone in the garage sitting on his motorcycle when he heard a pop. He knew right away that it was a gunshot. He ran into the house screaming for Michelle and she was in the bedroom with the door locked. As he tried to pry the door open, he heard another gunshot. He broke through the door and found her lying there covered in blood with his gun next to her and immediately called 911. The deputies and detectives who gathered at the house that night all agreed that this was an obvious suicide. Many of them were interviewed later on and said they never had any doubt that Michelle had taken her own life. The local media never reported anything about Michelle's death either. There was nothing to report. It was a tragic suicide and there was nothing more to it. Deputy Maynard and another officer were sent to inform the family. And first they told her brother, Scott, the fellow deputy. And after a minute of stunned silence, Scott handed his service weapon and keys to the officer and told them to take these away from him. And then he went with them to tell their mother, Patty, who knew all the officers from working at the sheriff's office. When she opened the door, she was smiling. She was happy to see them. But then they told her that Michelle had taken her own life. And right away, she didn't even believe it. In fact, no one in Michelle's family believed that she would have left her daughter Alexis, that she would have taken her own life. It made no sense. The sheriff's department had only spent a few hours at the scene before ruling her death a suicide. And two days later, the cause of death was confirmed by medical examiner, Dr. Frederick Hoban, who performed the autopsy. Michelle's sister tried to tell detectives that in the months before her death, Michelle had confided to her that Jeremy was abusive and sometimes violent. According to her, Jeremy had a short temper especially when drinking and during family events. And one Thanksgiving, Michelle's oldest brother, Justin, had kicked him out after he had started a fight. Started a fight on Thanksgiving. Let's think about that type of person, okay? Jeremy refused to leave, but when Scott realized he had brought his service weapon to Thanksgiving dinner, he insisted that he leave. Because Jeremy was a deputy with the same department handling the case, Michelle's family wanted an outside investigation conducted by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, the FDLE. A lieutenant met with Patty and other family members and told them that the sheriff's office was better equipped than the FDLE and assured them that they would do a much better job. 
When the family pushed back, the lieutenant got offended. He said, I feel like this is a damned inquisition on me. I haven't done anything wrong, guys. The sheriff's office hasn't done anything wrong. Their request for an outside investigation, however, was denied. This decision was made by the St. John's County Sheriff, David Shore, who is a powerful and well-connected elected official who was extremely protective of other officers. Michelle's family truly believed that there were decisions being made to protect Jeremy and to protect their department, not to get to the bottom of what actually happened that night. The forensic evidence that was collected at the scene was never tested. That's so crazy. Isn't that? It's just like, why not? Why not test it? Even if you're absolutely convinced. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Why do you think? Officers never canvassed the neighborhood either to find potential witnesses. Which there were other witnesses to what happened. There was actually a neighborhood witness that heard, help me, help me, coming from the house before Mm -hmm. two shots went out. Isn't that unbelievable? And the cops never even bothered to go ask anybody. Nope. And they didn't check Michelle's cell phone records or interview friends and family to find out if she showed any signs of being suicidal. They just assumed that she was. And within a matter of hours, police had decided what had happened. They said that there were no bruises on her body, so there hadn't been a struggle. They concluded that there was no way that she just stood still and let someone shoot her in the mouth. The only reasonable explanation to them was that she had done it herself. Michelle's family was obviously heartbroken, you know, that they had lost her. They loved Michelle. She was so loved by so many people and they couldn't believe that she was gone and that nothing was being done to get to the bottom of it. On September 9th, 2010, her friends and family gathered for a graveside service to say their final goodbyes to Michelle. And together they decided that they were not giving up without a fight. Because no one in the family believed that this was suicide at all. They were like, this was clearly done by Jeremy Mm -hmm. and he's just getting away with it. So one of the most obvious steps the police failed to take was piecing together the timeline of Michelle's last day, which could have been easily done by just talking to a few key witnesses and taking a look at her cell phone records. Why not? Yeah. It's just like, well, I mean, what doesn't make sense to me is that you're literally trained to treat every scene like Mm -hmm. it's a homicide until you prove it otherwise. Like that's the approach you're supposed to take Mm -hmm. is to say, okay, this person was murdered by this person that's here until we can prove that he wasn't Mm -hmm. or that that person didn't murder them. But that's not what happened. But that doesn't happen so often all across the country. Because he's one of the, you know, the fellow brother, sisters in law enforcement, Mm -hmm. they just take his word for it. And they're like, oh, Jeremy would never lie to us. He would never cover up something so mm-hmm. clearly that's what happened that afternoon michelle met her sister chrissy at her place and they had lunch together during lunch michelle said she was planning to break up with jeremy that night and had been looking for her own place for her and alexis looking at some apartments to move to chrissy knew that jeremy had been violent with her in the past and she was worried something might happen michelle didn't expect him to take it well and so there was definitely going to be a fight but she was prepared for it. She had paid for concert tickets for that night and she said she wasn't going to miss it. So after the show, her plan was to break up with Jeremy and then go on to start her new life and her new job. Here's a clip of Chrissy actually talking about this whole conversation. She said, in true Michelle fashion, I paid for the tickets, I'm going. I'm breaking up with him, I'm starting my life over and you know, I'm more sensitive and she said, I'll be fine. 
Later on, Michelle left Alexis with Chrissy and planned to pick her daughter up later. She then went to St. Augustine Amphitheater with Jeremy and her brother Sean to see the band Paramore perform. The place was packed, and while the band played, Michelle and Jeremy argued. They had started arguing before the concert, and it just never stopped. And when Sean saw that Jeremy was determined to not have any fun because there's actually a photo of him just literally mean mugging the camera, acting like he's having an absolute terrible time there, he asked Jeremy to switch seats so that he could sit with his sister and they could enjoy the concert. Dude, look at that face. Yeah, it's oh, honestly a scary so face. Evil. Yeah. God. She's like trying to smile. Oh, that's yeah, terrible. Yeah, it's just like literally setting the tone for what's what's going to happen later. <sighs> But once she was away from Jeremy, Michelle was in a much better mood, and she and Sean enjoyed the show. During the concert, Chrissy received a series of odd texts from Michelle that said things like, promise me one thing, Lexi will be happy, that no matter what, Lexi will always be safe and loved. Chrissy was very alarmed by these texts and texted back, what's going on, I'm scared. But Michelle just answered that she would be there soon to pick up Alexis. She also texted her brother Scott, Lexi never forget. On the drive home, she broke up with Jeremy as planned. Whenever she said, I'll have my stuff out by this weekend, and I said, are we breaking up? She said, yes. I was like, all right. And uh, yeah, we were talking about it. And we, 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 I raised my voice, she raised her voice, we argued. But we got to the house, we were fine. According to him, they argued in the car and things got heated. But by the time they got to the house, they had both cooled off. He stayed outside in the garage while she packed her things, and a few of his friends stopped by and stayed out there with him for about 10 to 20 minutes or so. While his friends were there, Michelle actually came out of the house to get her makeup bag from the car, but then went right back inside. After his friends left, Jeremy claimed he heard the first gunshot and rushed inside. He told the dispatcher and the officers who arrived on the scene that this was a suicide, and they all just took his word for it. And like we said earlier, Deputy Maynard was one of the first officers on the scene and has actually spoken out about how the department handled the investigation quite a bit. What's crazy is that later on, Deputy Maynard was actually fired from the St. John's Sheriff's Office for untruthfulness in a different unrelated case, mm -hmm. claiming that the sheriff asked her to lie and she refused, which I believe her completely because yeah. Sheriff Shore is definitely a shady character. Also, according to Deputy Maynard, every scene should be treated as a homicide until that is proven false because that's what they're trained to do and that the scene should have been locked down and evidence collected and tested to basically prove whether or not it was a homicide and that the officers, in fact, should have canvassed the neighborhood looking for witnesses and Jeremy should have been taken right to the police station to be interviewed and photographed in a controlled environment, not in the back of a squad car. Instead, he showed up at the station 12 days later to be interviewed again officially on the record and in the video it's clear that he was being treated like a colleague and a friend and not a potential suspect here's a clip of that comfy spinny chair not the suspect <laughs> i already read the report i know i probably shouldn't have but i just wanted to know what was done on the other side you know that's only minimal to one of the basics tell me what you where you saw things at the start of the interview, he admitted that he had read the report on the case, knowing he wasn't supposed to, so he already knew everything about the investigation, which is absolutely insane that they just were like, oh, you know, he has access to the, the file basically on the incident that happened, so it'd be very easy for him to manipulate his story, to actually be able to answer all the questions that they ask him in a way that doesn't basically implicate him in any sort of way. 
However, a few officers later on revealed that they had doubts about the scene that night, and one admitted to thinking that this is not good for Jeremy. Family members question why Jeremy didn't check Michelle's pulse or try to administer CPR. Because if you're, you know, even if it's your ex-girlfriend that just broke up with you, I think most normal human beings in this situation would rush in and try to help do anything to save that person, it, even if they had, you know, attempted to take their own life. But he didn't do any of that. Nope. And his attorney claimed that he wasn't acting like a deputy in those moments because that's what he should have done as a deputy is administer aid, but that he was just in shock and not thinking clearly. So that may or may not be true. The attorney also admitted that Jeremy didn't always secure his service weapon like he was supposed to. He just took off his holster and left it out sitting. This is one of the craziest things to me about this whole case is the fact that the gun was in a retention holster, which is literally made so that a person can't just walk up to a police officer, pull their gun out and shoot them or use it against them or steal it or whatever. But in fact, there's, it requires three fingers in order to actually pull it out and all holster. There's a bunch of different types of holsters and they're all different, but that safety mechanism is specifically there for the officer. So that basically only the officer has the ability to pull the gun out of the holster. And it is actually, I've actually used one of these before and it's actually way harder than you would think to pull this gun out of the holster really? it, you have to record you have to actually administer serious pressure it's oftentimes confusing hmm. and you have to not only press buttons on the holster but you have to rock the weapon back in a certain angle in order to even pull it out so a person who's not familiar with these holsters would most likely struggle significantly with this in order to even get it out of out of the holster at all so it seems very unlikely that somebody who is going to take their own life would choose to use a service weapon that mm -hmm. they have no idea how to use and pull out yeah. of a oh, holster. Totally. Yeah. just doesn't make any sense. No. There were also several other aspects of this case that her family questioned. Because the gun was found on her left side, she would have had to shoot herself with her left hand, but Michelle was right-handed. Hmm. That right there is... Big question mark. Yeah. Detectives on the case said that she was likely trying to figure out how to use the gun, which is why she took a practice shot into the carpet. Practice shot. That's unbelievable. And like their reasoning is like, oh, well, in some suicides, the person that is going to take their own life with a gun fires a shot to make sure it works before actually doing the fatal shot. And I'm like, like, I'm sure some people it do. It happens, that. but that just seems like that's a pretty. Can't raw just, generalization mm -hmm. to make with virtually no evidence and just assume that that is 100 what happened right, right and why yeah it just it doesn't make any sense she's just why would she risk knowing that this is jeremy's service weapon i'm gonna first fire off a yeah. practice shot before doing the fun makes no sense at all and just the timing of it doesn't make sense I right mean, she just like broke up with him right and she's let's not forget she's about to start this wonderful job why would she all of a sudden walk inside after a concert while him and his friends are outside she doesn't know that the friends have left and just do that why like none of it makes sense no all there's of the no story. evidence to support her doing that mm. at all and it just you know with or without evidence common sense just tells you that why why would anyone do that just doesn't add up yeah it, it doesn't and this doesn't add up either so the pill bottles found in her pockets were not hers. Mm. They were Jeremy's prescription, which were shoved in her purse. 
But the autopsy report shows, or the toxicology report showed that there was no drugs in her system. So detectives said she must have made a snap decision to decide to shoot herself instead of overdosing on pills. What I think is that I think these pills were likely planted on Michelle to make her look like she was just crazy out of control on the verge of, you know, suicidal. She's got pain pills, stealing his pills and just Mm -hmm. make her look as bad as possible. Because yeah, likely. Yeah. That's probably what happened. Because nothing about how Michelle was acting in the weeks leading up to her death or that night pointed to someone who was planning to die Mm -hmm. at all. Again, she texted Chrissy that she would pick up Alexa soon that night. Yep. And she had plans with a friend. She was going to go hang out with her friend later that night too. And she's just going to leave her daughter? Just split second decision, decide to take her own life? Absolutely not. An appointment book found in her car showed that she had signed up for CPR training that was scheduled to start just two days after her death for her new job at the daycare center. So that's very weird too. According to detectives, there was no evidence of a struggle, but Michelle had a bleeding cut over her right eye, and this was dismissed as well. Each time her family had a question about the evidence, the sheriff's department just dismissed their concerns and explained it away with their just generic reasonings for why it was a suicide with absolutely no evidence to back it up. For four months, Michelle's family was rallying, protesting, posting, blogging, and doing nonstop calling to put pressure on the sheriff's office. Finally... Sheriff David Shore agreed to allow the state investigators to take another look at the case. He brought in special agent Rusty Rogers from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. And right away, Rusty found two women who lived in the neighborhood who had heard noises coming from the house that night, as Josh mentioned earlier. Both witnesses heard a woman yell for help, followed by the gunshot. A woman yelled for help again, and then after the second gunshot, everything was silent. About 10 to 15 minutes later, they heard sirens, and both witnesses passed FBI-issued polygraph tests. Rusty presented his findings to Dr. Frederick Hoban in the medical examiner's office, who did Michelle's autopsy, and Frederick agreed to amend the death certificate to list homicide as the manner of death instead of suicide. But he was told by higher-ups not to file the amended death certificate. He was instructed to hold on to it while the investigation continued. So the sheriff's department brought in a new medical examiner to consult on the case, Dr. Pedrag Bulick. And Bulick examined the evidence and concluded that Michelle had shot herself in the mouth while holding the gun upside down. And he said that the cut on her eye matched the arc of the tack light on top of the barrel. When she fired the gun, it jerked upward, cutting her eyelid. Meanwhile, Rusty continued his investigation into the case. He interviewed Jeremy, and a child protection employee interviewed now five-year-old Alexis. And during Alexis's interview, she actually said that Jeremy is a bad person because he fought with her mom. He would jump on her and hit her. Her mom would yell for him to stop, but he wouldn't stop. According to Jeremy, he had never hit Michelle. He said that he had only ever put his hands on her once to restrain her while she lunged at him. So Rusty got a crime scene reconstructionist with four decades of experience to conduct a test to see if Michelle could have shot herself based on where the shell casings landed. And the test concluded that in an open field, based on the results, it was determined that someone else had to have shot her 
However, the sheriff's office dismissed the test because it was done outside without any variables at the scene, like the walls, the ceiling, or the furniture. So a special prosecutor was assigned to the case to go over all the investigations and the opinions of the consulted experts. After his review, Michelle's family was called in for a meeting and told that there wasn't enough evidence to charge Jeremy Banks with homicide. The state attorney was not going to be taking this case to a grand jury. Her family said that this was the second worst day of their lives after the day that Michelle had died. And her brother Scott was so angry that he screamed at the state attorney and allegedly threatened to blow up the sheriff's office. And this outburst ended up getting him fired. But I totally understand the anger. I would probably do the same thing. Oh, yeah. Michelle's case was officially closed in early 2012. Sheriff David Shore wrote a 152-page review that praised his officers and the department's work and harshly criticized the Florida Department of Law Enforcement and Rusty Rogers, which that is just so ironic. Jeremy responded by filing a lawsuit against Rusty and the FDLE for violating his civil rights, claiming they manipulated evidence and testing to fit their narrative that he killed Michelle. Well, then 2020 came along and they did some testing of their own to see if he was right about what actually happened. They brought in a forensic scientist and a professor from Penn State University and created an exact replica of the room where Michelle died in an indoor shooting range. The location of the shell casings is mainly dependent on the position of the gun when it's fired, as well as the trajectory is dictated by the laws of physics. The sheriff's office had concluded that Michelle was lying on the floor when she shot herself and held the gun upside down which makes no sense. The professor conducted the test three times, assuming she was lying down, sitting up and kneeling, taking 10 shots for each position. For all 30 shots, the shell casings ejected toward the right, the opposite of where they were found. Because of the physics of the way the gun is designed, the professor explained that there is no way the casings could have landed behind her and to the left. The sheriff had explained this away by saying one of the first responders must have just kicked them. Doesn't this remind you of Kurt Cobain? It does a lot, you know, mm-hmm. and they said the same thing. Maybe they were kicked by the sheriffs or the why the hell scene. that would be just so stupid. That would be a literal mm-hmm. mistake by them to do that. But yeah, in his case, too, all the bullets landed on the incorrect side when they tested mm-hmm. versus if somebody was standing in front of the person when they yeah, shot it, right. where would the casings go? Mm-hmm. They go the way that they were found. Mm-hmm but they just dismissed that away as they kicked it. This was absolutely wild to me is that when they did this test, the professor explained that when a gun is fired, it's just the physics that it's going to recoil back, not upwards. So there was no way that she could have shot herself upside down with the gun upside down and And the tack light then cut her eye in the way that it did. No, it doesn't make any sense. How can a professional get away with saying something so obviously untrue i don't know it honestly blew my mind i was like really yeah that's have you ever seen a gun go off it's called recoil for a reason it Mm -hmm. goes backwards away from whatever it's shooting at not that would be so weird if you shot a 45 caliber gun and it goes up yeah like like, yeah like what makes no sense makes that it's just impossible just such incompetence i mean in this field and you don't understand that. Or it's just bullshit and they're just trying to yeah. sweep it under the rug. Yep. And so they'll mm-hmm. say whatever they have to say. Mm-hmm. 
But the professor also conducted a test to see where the shell casings would land if someone else had shot her in the face. And in the 10 shots, they all landed very close to where they were actually found on the scene. Imagine that. When Patty was shown the results of these tests, she was furious and didn't understand why the sheriff's office wasn't conducting tests themselves as well as interviewing witnesses. I would wonder the exact same thing. In 2014, a new witness came forward, a bar owner named Danny Harmon. And Danny claimed that Jeremy had come to his bar the night after Michelle had died. Jeremy had said that all Michelle ever did was put him down. So he was moving on with his life and wasn't going to let her hold him back anymore. His attorney denied that he went to the bar that night or ever spoke to the owner about Michelle. Jeremy has also claimed that this case has ruined his life, describing neighbors screaming murderer at his house in the middle of the night. Oh, boo. I know. Maybe it's because you're a fucking murderer. Seriously, maybe don't murder somebody. Three years after Michelle died, her brother Scott ended up taking Jeremy's side. He now believes that the conclusion of the initial investigation was correct and Michelle died by suicide. Like Jeremy, Scott also filed a lawsuit against Rusty Rogers and the FDLE for misleading him about the case and making him turn against his coworker and friend, Jeremy Banks. After Scott's outburst that got him fired from the department, Rusty had allegedly reported him to the sheriff's office as a possible active shooter, which directly led to his dismissal. Rusty had already been investigated by the state attorney on a criminal complaint for how he treated Scott, but no charges were filed. He was also cleared of wrongdoing by the FDLE internal affairs investigation, but it was noted that his work in this case was substandard. Sheriff David Shore eventually reinstated Scott as a deputy in the department. And in 2017, Scott was arrested and charged with domestic battery for punching his wife in the face. And according to her, he had been going through periods of being verbally and physically abusive since 2011. <laughs> So since taking Jeremy's side, Scott has been estranged from his mother and the rest of his siblings who still strongly believe that Michelle was murdered. Isn't that such a That's, strange turn of events? It really is. That's just, it's crazy. I did not expect that from Scott. God, that's, I mean, that's horrible. I know, I know. Well, it seems like he's got a lot in common with Jeremy. Oh, man. And just yeah. the type of person that he is. Really sad. But let's get into some of the recent developments that are happening with this case as well as just the aftermath of the whole thing. But before we do, we're going to take one more break. We'll be right back. So during the state's investigation into Michelle's case, her mother, Patty, asked for permission to exhume her daughter's body. And she was granted permission, but then never heard about it again and nothing ever happened. So in 2016, their family decided they would take matters into their own hands and start the process themselves. They had Michelle's body exhumed and then they commissioned for a second autopsy by Dr. William Anderson, who's a forensic pathologist and former deputy chief medical examiner for Orange County, Florida, who had conducted between 8,000 and 9,000 autopsies in his career wow. and when he looked at an x-ray from the initial autopsy he was shocked by what he saw it turns out michelle's jawbone had been fractured and it was in two pieces the family had been told that she had no other injuries dr hoban knew about the fracture when he did the first autopsy it was impossible to miss but he only included it in his field notes not the official report just complete negligence the force of a gunshot wound to the head can cause mandibular separation. Dr. Anderson explained that if that were the case, her teeth, gums, and the floor of her mouth and other soft tissue would have been severely damaged, but none of them had any damage at all. There was a question of why there were no bruises outside of her jaw if she had been hit, but he said that in his experience, if a person dies very soon after an injury like this, there's often not bruising. 
And this new update about Dr. Anderson's findings actually made national headlines. According to Dr. Anderson, he said that there was just a hole in her tongue and there was no other like there was no other damage to her mouth. So basically the other medical examiner, Dr. Hoban, he said that it was actually the gunshot that actually split the jaw. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, the fact that he did upon the official report just screams to me that, you know, this was a part of a cover up of mm-hmm. some kind to kind of leave this off the radar because he knows, I mean, he's a medical examiner. He's the same education as Dr. Anderson that, in this case, that's likely not what happened. It was likely a hit to the jaw prior to the shot being done mm-hmm. that, in fact, broke her jaw into two, which the speculation around that was perhaps Jeremy may have hit her with his fist prior to shooting her or actually just hit her with the butt of his gun prior to shooting her. That would have caused the jaw to actually split. It would also explain how he was able to get her lying down on the floor as well. Right. If you hit her hard enough, I mean, you're going to knock her mm-hmm. out. And so perhaps that's what happened is he knocked her out in some way and that's what separated her jaw into two. And then that's also how she ended up lying on the floor, which would also explain why a bullet would have gone if a bolt was shot down would have gone right through her tongue right yeah that makes complete sense so after this new information came out and they had made headlines even made it on gma this really pissed off sheriff david shore and he responded by attacking their family he claimed that they were paying someone to author the report but this wasn't true at all actually all the work that was being done by dr anderson was pro bono In his statement, David said, molesting Michelle from her place of rest using some freelance type of approach is beyond unconventional. It was reprehensible. That is the most offensive statement. Yeah, you're reprehensible, dude. Molesting Michelle. So the fact that her family wanted to exhume her body, he's saying is molesting Michelle. Isn't that sick? That is just because they want justice for her and they want to know the truth. Because of you, asshole. Like what kind of what kind of even statement? That's such seriously. A, what a, what vulgar terminology to use as a professional? Like how yeah. how uh, inappropriate? I mean, nobody should ever say something like that. But yeah. for that to come from the top of the law enforcement in this this area, and this isn't just hearsay either. He said this to someone. This is a statement he put yeah. out to the public, right? And then to basically take shots at Dr. Anderson and call him freelance type. When yeah. this guy has done 8,000 to 9,000 autopsies, he's, he literally <laughs> was a medical medical examiner Dude. for Orange County, Florida. Like, what? That doesn't even make sense. That's just that's just somebody who's upset that people are coming after him. And mm-hmm. he's just mad that Shit the family's stirring stuff up because he's just trying to, to sweep it all under and the rug move and on. move on. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's disgusting. So Jeremy has maintained his innocence and has repeatedly denied hurting Michelle that night that she died or ever. He's never been charged with a crime and he kept his job as a deputy. That's right. In 2017, both medical examiners, Dr. Frederick Hoban and Dr. Predrag Bulick, were reprimanded for mishandling various aspects of the case. Dr. Hoban was reprimanded for never filing the amended death certificate and for taking it home with him, as well as for leaving the fractured jawbone out of the official autopsy report. Dr. Bulick was reprimanded for showing the autopsy photos to unauthorized people. Great work, men. Really good. This was a small victory for the family, of course, but they weren't done fighting for justice. 
Then in the spring of 2018, a judge dismissed Jeremy's lawsuit against Rusty Rogers and the FDLE, determining that there was probable cause to investigate him. Michelle's family wants the governor to assign a new special prosecutor, and they want Jeremy to be finally charged with Michelle's murder. They're also fighting to pass a law that would prevent law enforcement agencies from investigating one of their own, which would be great to have. Deborah Maynard ran against David Shore for sheriff in 2016, giving him a challenger for the first time in two elections. And she hoped to bring change, accountability, and transparency to the sheriff's office. She opposed David on the controversial issue of mandatory body cameras for police officers, which Deborah strongly supports. David won the election, though, with nearly 86% of the vote and credited his officers for the win. He retired from the position, however, in the 2020 election cycle. Michelle's case has been closely followed by many in the true crime community, including private investigator Eli Washtock. Eli, who was a mechanic with two kids who used they them pronouns, was inspired to work as an independent researcher to get justice for Michelle and her family. And they were making quite a bit of progress on their investigation. In August 2018, Eli requested crime scene photos from the St. John's County Sheriff's Office, and that request was granted. And they picked up a disc on August 30th, 2018, and paid $7.50 for it. A few months later, on January 30th, 2019, Eli sent their 15-year-old son to stay with neighbors in a condo two floors below. Eli lived in the gated community of Latera Condominiums near the World Golf Village Resort in St. Augustine, Florida. And according to Eli's sister, they had noticed multiple people watching them from the resort earlier that day and was worried something might happen. When their son walked in, he noticed that Eli had been shot. And sadly, Eli ended up passing away from this gunshot wound. And when the police came, they really didn't have any idea where to start. There was really no evidence to go off of. And their death was ultimately ruled a homicide and has still not been solved to this day. Patty O'Connell feels strongly that Eli was killed for investigating her daughter's case, and Eli's father also agrees. And because of the conflict of interest in St. John's County with Michelle's case, the Putnam County Sheriff's Office, located about an hour from St. Augustine, was brought in to investigate Eli's murder, and you can just imagine how well that's going. It's not going well at all. There's literally no updates with that as of right now. And there's no way to prove that there's any connection with their death to Michelle's. Right. According to the sheriff's office, they said it could just be a coincidence that Eli was murdered. But then again, there's no yeah. there's no evidence to support either way at this point. Well, I don't know. It's pretty weird that they were investigating all of this and really digging in and then they end up dead. You know, it just seems I don't I guess there's no way to for sure say, but it I don't know. It's very suspicious. And there's actually on Discovery Plus, Josh and I watched it the other night. Um, I can't remember. What's it? What's I know. I'm looking at it. It's called like Citizen something, the show. Citizen P.I. Citizen P.I. It's on Discovery Plus. And basically there's these two amateur sleuths that just love true crime, really mm -hmm. passionate about it, want to get justice for Michelle. Looking named, for a case to do a podcast. On right, they exactly. They did their first season of their podcast on Michelle's case. Javier Leva and John Taylor, uh, they were in this Citizen PI mm -hmm. show. And and there wasn't a whole lot of new information in no. there. It was really just kind of basically picking up the pieces from where Eli left mm -hmm. the case and trying to find out you know, more and 
keep going down that road but ultimately they really didn't find out anything that was like no nothing really groundbreaking other than the fact that well there was two things that they sort of noticed so they went and looked at the crime scene photos as well and they noticed that there was a blanket over a chair um i believe it was just outside of the bedroom that ultimately had luggage underneath it which would have indicated that maybe she was she was leaving that just supports what she said that i'm leaving jeremy and she had her stuff already packed or at least the bags were there for her to pack up at some point that night that's a big piece and it looked like jeremy likely had thrown a blanket over the top of it before the police arrived to hide that Mm -hmm. because i mean he's got that law enforcement mindset so he knows what they're going to be looking for and he just covered that up too it seems like he did his best to sort of stage the scene Mm -hmm in a way that made sense to other officers so that when they arrived, they automatically believed his narrative of this was a suicide. So I wonder if he purposely had his friends come over to give him more of an alibi. I was outside with my friends. My friends were with me. They saw me outside. Mm -hmm. That's obviously why he did that. He was trying to cover it all up. He was, yeah. And these guys also found another picture that just was completely glazed over of a shirt with blood on it that just nobody ever said anything about and the shirt is like in a completely different area from where michelle was like it's far enough away that and it's enough blood on saturated blood on it that it would have been had to have been used to blot something or at least that's what i think based on the Mm -hmm. photo but nobody ever asserted how this much blood got on this shirt that is just randomly off to the side and jeremy away from her is away from her and mm-hmm. didn't touch her at all. So he claims. So it's just so frustrating when you think about it. You know, if this happened in any other county and maybe if he wasn't a sheriff, would this have shaken out differently? Would things. Oh, yeah. I mean, it totally would have. It right? would have been handled way differently. It's just, it's so frustrating. And when you think about how the night played out, it all makes total sense from the fighting at the concert. You see that picture of him. Look at his eyes. He just looks so, like I said, evil in that picture yeah there's definitely angry thoughts going through his head totally sure. and and then of course what she told her sister about how abusive he was to her come on yeah. he knew she was leaving that was it she made it clear she was done with his ass and he had that mindset of if i can't have you no one can so i'm gonna take your life before you can even leave and he probably had his friends over unless they lied about even being there but yeah i doubt it i think he brought them there as an alibi yeah he did i mean he clearly had this like planned i mean Mm -hmm. he this i don't think this was necessarily like a spur of the moment i think he knew that this was coming and i think based on their conversations that he figured that this was probably going to be the end tonight yep and i mean just from the fact that the he saw that the luggage bags were out i think i mean i think it was predetermined Mm -hmm. that she was going to break up with him and so he was planning this down to a t i mean he had he was hoping that his friends would be like his cover for him to Mm -hmm. be outside when the shots go off but we already know that the friends weren't there right there's a period of time where they were not there but they do supply him with an alibi that he was outside right that he was outside right you know and there he wasn't fighting with her actively inside or anything but i think the uh neighbor that bared witness to hearing her yell out help me and then the one shot and then mm-hmm. another shot. Yeah. I think that's pretty telling too. I mean, oh, that's how many huge. people, I mean, that just seems very 
unlikely for somebody who's going to take their own life to be yelling, help me, help mm -hmm. me, mm -hmm. before two shots rang out. Mm -hmm. I mean, and then the whole jaw thing. I mean, that's a, to me, it seems pretty clear that he most likely knocked her out, knocked her to the floor yeah, oh, totally. prior to then basically executing her, which is just, just so terrible. And then the, the worst part about this is this guy is literally patrolling the streets mm -hmm. of St. John's County right now. It's not unbelievable. 10 years later. If you live in this area, you might get pulled over by this guy. Yeah. This guy's literally most allegedly, most likely yeah, a murderer. Allegedly. You know, obviously we can't, we can't prove anything, but I think you can look at the evidence and make up your own mind about the truth mm -hmm. of what really happened to Michelle O'Connell. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this one out. No, but apparently the police can't do it. No. And I think at the end of the day, it comes down to, first of all, the sheriffs have way too much power and yeah. you know especially county county environments and just their power over you know everybody from the prosecutor's office all the way to even who sits on the grand jury i mean it's our justice system is set up so that it's you know supposed to be a fair fair for everybody right mm -hmm. you're supposed to have this fair trial everybody's got their fair shot in court and that's really all that michelle's family wants is they just want to see him have his day in court yeah and and have the evidence presented mm -hmm. all of it bring in the witnesses bring in the witnesses let a jury decide because i think if you presented everything we just talked about in this episode mm -hmm. to a to an unbiased grand jury i think you would most likely get an indictment especially if they could you know either i doubt they can use the data from 2020's experiment but if they no. could conduct something similar yeah. and present data like that about the yeah. shell casings think that would somebody on the on the law enforcement side should have done a test mm -hmm. i mean they did their test if she was holding the gun on herself upside down and that was the only sort of test they did where the medical examiner was like oh yeah this is how it was done and but it literally makes no sense and a medical examiner is not gonna be an expert on how a, a gun works why is he giving the demonstration it should be somebody who's got the knowledge and experience with weapons to know how they work and that's just what blows my mind is that I know there's not a doubt in any of their minds deep down that this was not not done by Jeremy. And in fact, it's about covering up and, and protecting their own. I mean, that's that's what they do. And we've seen it in so many cases where So that's really the culture that's set like you protect your own. Yeah. So do they ever set anything about you will also hold each other accountable? Is that well, part of it's it? It's a double standard. That's the thing about it, is it's very hypocritical because what they teach you in academy is totally different from what's actually happening on a day-to-day -day basis in many police departments and sheriff's departments across country is that to it becomes it's like you are in this brotherhood sisterhood with all these officers and at the end of the day the the main the number one thing that trumps everything else is that you protect a fellow officer you all you always make sure you and your fellow officers go home every night and that's it and literally deputy maynard even said that literally they're they are asking they're telling you that if you see another officer do something wrong don't say anything about it like mm -hmm. that's what superiors were telling him so that's that's the problem with the police departments is that for every good officer there seems to be a few bad apples in there mm -hmm. that are just not doing it the right way and not upholding the oath that you're sworn to when you become a law enforcement officer, I mean, the amount of power that you carry is immense. And the fact that that's not, everybody's not held to that standard and that mm -hmm. 
it really comes top down too. If your sheriff is setting the tone that this stuff's okay and that we protect our own and stuff, that yeah. gives your officers the idea and feeling that, oh, if I mess up, my boss has got my back. So if I so do something wrong, and that's there's officers that plant evidence on people. I mean, there's so oh, many, totally. so many problems. And now, thankfully, stuff's getting caught on video, and we're starting to really see the reality mm -hmm, of policing. Mm -hmm. And it's in a really, really bad place. I think the reason why there's so many unsolved cases and there's so many just no movement on cases is because of sloppy police work and sloppy police leadership. Really. And just to be clear, you're not saying all police officers, of course, there are departments out there that are really absolutely setting I've a great many example good officers. And I've, I've yeah. met many great people who are in it for the right reason and really do care about what they're doing. And there's obviously officers that give their life to stop mass shooters. There's officers that mm -hmm. jump in the line of fire that that is what the job is. That's what mm -hmm. it should be about is protecting and serving at whatever cost where you are literally you take a, an oath to protect the citizens of wherever you're serving to the mm -hmm. point where you would take a bullet for them. Yeah. So to now have an officer who's literally doing the opposite of that and taking citizens' lives and getting away with it, that just shows you how corrupt and how just at, mm -hmm. what a mess that department is. is. And that's why the sheriff, the one at the top, is so important. And that's why they're voted in is so that the people feel comfortable with the person who's running the law enforcement for that right. area. Right. It's so important. Like, and, and uh, nobody ever explains that to you growing up and no. about politics or like, they how, barely talk about that on the news. Yeah. Nobody ever really talks about the fact of how important it is to look into the DA running, look into the sheriff. But the problem mm -hmm. is, is that in many counties they run unopposed. Yeah. And, and they what, have been for years. Right. I mean, it's really wild. That's why, it goes back just decades and decades of corruption in these police departments that it's hard for them to it break out deep. of it because it it's like a culture. It has become a culture in right. that particular department. And it becomes about, it becomes a giant cover up where everybody's covering up for the past mistakes made yep. by the department. And you know, when we, I know we always bring up uh, Christian Andriacchio's case, the documentary that we made, but that was a very profound experience for Josh and I going out there and, seeing things for ourselves and really diving in with this family into everything. And the same shit's happening the down there. It was the same thing. The, the guy who had been in as DA had been there for, I want to say like, I can't even remember like how many years. So many years. Multiple decades. He had run multiple decades unopposed. No one had ever run against him. And he had done so much shit and it had been brushed under the rug. And finally, we captured it. He was, uh, he, someone ran against him, had the guts to do it. And uh, yeah, I guess I won't give away what happened, but if you want to watch our documentary, I'll link it below. But it was, it was a very similar situation to this. And it happens all over the countries, bad DAs that are just sitting there and all the skeletons especially, in their closet sit there yeah. with them. Well, especially, I mean, it's even worse in, in small towns, smaller towns yes. like St. Augustine's a smaller, smaller city than some of the large you know, most large cities, you know, Denver, Chicago, L.A., the sheriff of those counties are, you know, there's oftentimes a lot more movement and there's a, they have a lot more sheriffs oftentimes right, because right. of just because of the sheer amount of mm -hmm. people there are and the amount of people that run. But in smaller towns across the U.S., it's it's who, you know, 
is yeah. is, is what really matters. It's very it's true, not, but not, not to say that the larger cities police aren't corrupt. No, because a lot of them are true, true. But it's it's, it's obviously yeah, it's obviously a little bit. It works a little bit different mm -hmm. because it's. I mean, it's still very political, still about who you know. But when it comes to small towns, like if if you're not in the know, mm -hmm. then why even run for office? Because you're just you're going to lose to whoever the person that's in office who has been in the community, everybody knows him right. and he's kind of putting on this whole, you know, front for everybody. And, and just the name they know on the ballot. They're like, Oh, I know that right. guy. Well, and it's also, it comes down to, because when you run for sheriff, you do have to run as a Democrat or Republican. Mm -hmm. And really that doesn't really play that big of a factor no. into your policies. Obviously to some extent it will, but oftentimes, I mean, if you look at sheriffs across the U S and especially small towns, mm -hmm. what you find is that they're oftentimes Republican. And so if you're a Democrat at sheriff trying to run and take a seat, most times it's going to be much more difficult for you to accomplish that unless you can convince Republican voters or independent voters to sort of swing to your side. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what we, we found out in Meridian yes. is that that's a Republican town. The government's been Republican for since the beginning of time. And so to Most get a people new just vote with, you know, they're just going to go R down the board without even researching the candidate is what you're saying. Right. So a voter in that county is going to get their ballot and it's just names and RRD yeah. next to it. And so yeah. most voters, because they're not taught any different and there's no information on the or they policies just don't care or enough. they don't care enough to like, ah, oh, Republican, 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 yeah. Republican yeah. or Democrat, Democrat, even though Democrat, they have no idea down. that this person hasn't prosecuted several murders and yeah. You know, crimes going through the roof yeah. and, you know, they're letting all these people walk and whatnot. So and there's just, bad Democratic DAs, too, out there. I just want to. Yeah. yeah, we're not just that. ragging on Republicans. No. I mean, it's, it's Josh was just using that as an example. I mean, they're all bad. A lot of them. I mean, not, yeah. not all bad, but it doesn't matter the political sides. affiliation. Yeah, it's yeah. just it. I'm just saying it in if you look at data, you look at small towns. Right. Oftentimes it's going to be a Republican. It is. Yeah. You know, that, that's just statistics about mm -hmm. the United States is like rural communities no, typically lean more Republican. Mm -hmm. And what do we see is we see a lot of problems in small towns. I mean, there's a there's endless cases, yeah. dude. Endless. <laughs> there's endless. a podcast literally called like small town uh, murders or something. Like oh, there's really? one that just literally focuses on the bullshit of the southern small towns because it's just so. It, they yep. just do things a different way. It's just kind of like they still have this Wild West mentality of like, this is how it's always been, so we're not going to change it. But people yeah. are getting screwed over and cases are going unsolved. Yeah. Same thing in Texas mess. with the county that right. we talked about earlier, Grayson yep. County. Right. And Katie Palmer's case, which, by the way, don't forget to follow our call to action listed in the description box for Katie's case. And we will put any information as far as social media you can follow for michelle o'connell as well um and any other petitions that are active we'll look and see what's going on um, yeah i don't so that I you mean, guys can take some action there too if possible i'm just not sure what they have i out mean there at right this now. point because it's already been investigated by the state that literally it's going to take the governor getting yeah. involved to really have any movement with this which is just so sad yeah because this is just such so clear and the fact that uh, the fact that jeremy had his whole lawsuit and stuff like mm -hmm. you know like basically he's kind of like in the clear yeah. as of right now like that's, that's what's crazy he's in the clear he's still working as a sheriff's deputy which oh is God. absolutely insane so and scary insane. it yeah. also makes you think of what other deputies or police officers out there are 
criminals literally working as law enforcement officers. It's just wild. I'm sure there are some out there, but not, hopefully and again, not I don't want to make it sound like we're just ragging on the police and we hate the police because that's not the case. I think police have their role. I think that they're, they are required for our society to remain intact, but I also think that they need to step it up yeah, we have big some time. Serious fucking we have issues. major problems. I mean, almost you guys know if you watch this show, it's like almost every case, almost yeah. every case on my channel. You go it's back to over it over and over and over again. And and it's like some of it is not even like the officer's faults necessarily. It comes back to training. It comes back to who's True. teaching them what they learn. Are they learning the right? Are they learning what to do in a situation where you get a call to a scene that is a suicide? Do you, what do you do as an officer to investigate mm -hmm. that? Are you you know, are you securing the scene? Are properly? they making sure they're actually following right, protocols right. after an incident happens? Is there a follow up? And that's what's happening too. Is there's just not enough oversight from a higher level watching over what mm -hmm. officers are doing. And that's what yeah. it comes down to is the amount of freedom that they have, even with body cameras. There's still problems because officers can turn them off on, you know, yeah. they, they can choose be, not to show they can the manipulate their body and stuff to make so it's uh -huh. not a foolproof solution to no. holding officers accountable. I mean, what is it going to take to really like bring up the level? And it, it also comes back to sadly money. It comes back to the people that go into law enforcement are going into it knowing that it's not going to be a huge, you know, paying job. It's not going to be like going to make you rich by any means, but the amount of money that's allocated to the emergency services. And this just goes for first responders across the board is not nearly enough mm -mm. at all. I mean, mm -mm. EMTs to firefighters to police officers, the that's salaries so that they get are not, not great. And I think if we were to, I think one way to elevate the quality of, of the officers, especially on the police side, is if you you made it more lucrative job opportunity. You pay more. It, you make it. You know there should be hazard pay. You're putting your life on the line. Oh, you know there yeah. should be more benefits. To there's being, not hazard pay. No, it's not. That's no. There's not like extra money that you get because you put your life on the line. It's oh, like I guess you're right. I it's guess just I've a never thought about government salary job. It's no different. Wow, than, that's unbelievable. That's. Obviously, there's like insurance and life mm -hmm. insurance, but it's like mm -hmm. you're not getting anything additional for putting your life on the line every day. I mean, yeah, it's crazy. And the whole system's like incredibly, incredibly yeah. broken. And you could also say, make the argument for mental health. What's the mental health of these officers? Are they dealing with the stress adequately mm -hmm. in order to refresh themselves before they go back on shift? And I mean, it's a tough job. I mean, you see the absolute worst of society in the job and day in day out i mean it doesn't matter how tough you are how badass you are how what experience you have it's going to take a toll on you mentally and it's going to eventually affect your whole psyche and how you i mean you i mean that's why the divorce rate among officers is extremely high it's why the suicide rate among officers is extremely high i don't know the exact numbers but i know it, it would it just it would shock you mm -hmm. because of just how demanding the job is and there's not enough support for officers to deal with these things. And so they bottled up, they turn to drinking, drugs, whatever it is to cope with these things. And then ultimately, you know, they might've started out being this upstanding citizen police officer and they end up being just an absolute mess by the end. Of and it. then barely getting by, barely analyzing crime scenes correctly, right. not taking just DNA not caring. when they're supposed not to. Not giving a shit. You're just yeah. like, this is, they don't pay me enough for this. Mm -hmm. So why do I care? Some officers, again, right. I want to clarify some. Right. Then there's then there's those officers out there mm -hmm. who take it seriously, are really in it for the right reasons and doing it the right way. 
And unfortunately, there's not enough of them. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just, a, it's a very complex issue. I think that is going to take a lot of effort from a lot of different entities to really resolve. And I guess as I get off the soapbox, I'll say <laughs> vote, like yeah. vote, be active in your community, know what's going on. I think it's important to watch like local news, know what's happening crime wise in your, in your area. Yeah. See what's, what's happening with, you know, law enforcement and look beyond i mean i feel like the average person is really only cares about president and they go in and they don't know half the names on the ballot you right, know and they right. didn't look it up and don't really care that much and it's okay like i don't judge people for doing that it's our education's failure yeah, that yeah. we haven't taught people what that means what those positions hold why you should vote for those right. things why it matters yeah it's it's the media's fault as well that they don't report on those types of people as much it's all about everything else and the ad they don't you know it's just like people don't know keep you distracted right yeah keep you distracted from what's and really this going shit on. happens and real people get affected and people yeah. get away with murder yeah so even a police officer unbelievable he got back in again yeah all right well this episode is getting quite long so we're going to go ahead and wrap it up we will have another true crime episode for you guys next week. And is there anything else you'd like to say, Josh? No, I think I, I've spoken all of the thoughts that I have. Wow. He has spoken I've all spoken. of the thoughts that he has. That You heard her I first, could go on people. and on, honestly, though. If you want to hear me yeah, rant, maybe I'll get on a ugh. live stream or something someday. But Why don't you just go in the house and start a live stream? It's just, it's just one of those things. It just makes me so mad to see this happen. I mean, especially the police officer literally still working when he likely murdered somebody. It just, I know it's, it's hard it's to crazy. even like, it's like, what do you even do? Like there's, and there's nothing you can even do. Imagine how their family feels. Yeah. Dude. I, I couldn't even imagine being, being Michelle's family. I mean, he's so angry, but yeah, let us know what your thoughts are on this case. And as well as Katie Palmer's case, we'd really love to hear mm -hmm. what you have to say. We'll put all the information for the cases in the description below or the show notes, but that is it for us today on the Malhire podcasts. If you, if you enjoy the show, we appreciate it. If you subscribe to us on YouTube and Apple podcasts, it does really help us out. But until next time, keep on taking your mind a mile higher. Yeah.